Well, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 19. Today we're going to read verses 17 through 20. My plan originally was to include this passage along with the section we did last week. So they're pretty, they're pretty closely related, but uh, the way sermon prep wound up, I just had to divide them. And so we're picking up where we left off last week, and we're picking up with a book burning in Ephesus. I thought, thought it might be interesting to begin by asking the question, what do we normally think about book burning? What do we think about the deliberate destruction by fire of books or other written materials usually carried out in a public context? Or what are we supposed to think about book burning? Well, in our Western liberal society, it's a practice that is frowned upon. It's a practice that is generally condemned by most modern cultures. Book burning is viewed as anti-intellectual, anti-democracy, anti-free speech, anti-liberty. Burning books, that sounds like something the Bolsheviks would have done. And we don't want to be like those villains. And I will say that Christians of all people should highly value books And we do so because God has revealed himself to us in a book. Now we know that God, of course, reveals himself and has revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The physical world reveals to us that there is a God. But the stars don't tell us how we come into right relationship with him. Creation points to the fact that he's there, but we don't know how we are accepted and forgiven. That's the problem. We need a special revelation, and God has graciously provided that in a book. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually begins with this. It says that God has uh, made his goodness and wisdom and power so, so clear to humanity that we have no excuse. And he has revealed himself to his people through various ways at various times. But then he says this. The confession says this. Afterwards, it pleased God to put this entire revelation into writing so that the truth might be better preserved and transmitted and that the church, confronted with the corruption of the flesh and the evil purposes of Satan and the world, might be securely established and comforted since God no longer reveals himself to his people in those earlier ways, Holy Scripture is absolutely essential God put his revelation in writing so that truth might be better preserved 
and transmitted so that the church might be securely established and comforted. And because we don't have any more burning bushes, and because there aren't any new prophets or prophecies, Holy Scripture is absolutely necessary. Because of this, Christians of all people should possess an inherent respect for books. Because God has revealed himself in one. Christians of all people. Molly and I were talking about this this week. Christians of all people should be readers. And we should be able to read well. And if we can't, we should strive to be those who can. And work at it. And train ourselves and learn to be better readers. And stretch ourselves in reading harder people. Also, that we can better approach God's Word. The church should be pro book. And yet, what we're going to see in Ephesus is a book burning. And it's a good thing. This isn't a crazed mob, this isn't the heavy hand of religious censorship. This is praiseworthy. It's praiseworthy because it is an action of repentance and new obedience in these newborn Christians. No one's confiscating books. This is all voluntary. People are convicted of sin, and so they bring forth their own books and burn them themselves. This is a public demonstration of repentance where the Ephesians are openly declaring that they are no longer trusting in the powers of darkness, but are instead trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's your intro. But before we read this text, let's pray together. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you sincerely that the seed of your word, which is now sown among us, may take deep root so that neither this burning heat of tribulation will cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life, choke it out. But that as a seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or 100-fold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Would you do this through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Again, I want to remind you of the context where we find ourselves. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. Luke tells us, beginning in verse 11, that God is doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that a, a handkerchief that has touched Paul's skin can be taken by someone else to someone who is sick or possessed by an evil spirit, and that person would be healed. And God is using these miracles to validate Paul's preaching and to lay the foundation of the church there in Ephesus. And then what we saw last week was some Jewish exorcists see what Paul is doing and they see how successful he is. And they say, oh, we, there must be a secret word here. There is power in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims. And so they decide they're going to co-opt that power and they're going to use it for themselves and things go very badly for them. We talked about that last week. If The sermon's on the website if you want to listen to it. But the main problem was that they don't know Jesus. They aren't honoring Jesus His name is simply being used by them to get what they want. He is a means to an end. His name is being used to line their pockets and they are humiliated for it. Well, then we pick up this week where we left off. Everyone sees this. The residents of the city hear what happens to the seven sons of Sceva. And we see in the last half of verse 17, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So I thought it might be helpful to just remind you and just spend some time looking at the word fear. You know, in the Greek, if you look at this uh, word in a Greek New Testament, it's the word phobos, which sounds very much like our word phobia. And it means what you would think. To be afraid of something. And we see this throughout Scripture. The psalmist fears his enemy. Different governments and armies and people groups are are feared. Sometimes there are overwhelming, threatening circumstances that cause a person to fear, such as when a young betrothed woman named Mary is pregnant. And then there's the common refrain spoken by the Lord or by his servants. And you know it. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. We see this over and over again. But then there's another kind of fear. The most important kind of fear that we see in the Bible. And we know that it is fear of God. This really is the summary statement of Proverbs. It's the summary statement of all wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? That's something different than 
the type of fear Mary had when she found out she was with child. Psalm 115, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. This is a different kind of fear. No angel is going to show up and tell God's people, hey, don't fear the Lord. Because this is something different. To fear the Lord is to ascribe to God the respect and honor that is rightly his. That's what this is. To ascribe to God the respect and honor that is rightly his. And we see this play out in Scripture. In Deuteronomy, fearing the Lord is linked to love of God and obedience to his commandments. In Psalm 2, we read, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So fearing the Lord is linked with rightly serving God. It's also linked with worshiping him. In Psalm 5, 7, we read, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So I could go on and on. There are tons of passages like this. But what a difference a right relationship with God makes. For the unbeliever, for the enemy of God, they fear him the way we would normally think of the word. But for the believer, for his covenant people, they need not fear the Lord as the unbelievers do. And they need not fear any circumstance or enemy or anything else in all creation as long as they fear the Lord and describe honor and glory to him. As long as they love him and serve him and keep his commandments, there is nothing we need fear. And this is what is happening in Ephesus. A fear fell upon the people. This is obviously the fear of the Lord because what comes next? The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of Jesus is praised enthusiastically. And then they begin to act in obedience and love for God. They begin to abandon their practices of darkness. This fear of the Lord produces repentance in their lives. We see this in verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So over the last couple months, as we've gone from Acts 17, 18, and now 19, we've seen that these major cities that Paul is visiting, each one had its own flavor. You know, Athens was the city of the philosophers. Corinth was the city of sensual lusts. And Ephesus... What was Ephesus? Ephesus was a major center of the occult. This makes a lot of sense with everything that we've seen thus far in Acts 19. Now, if you aren't familiar with the word occult, you should be. The word occult means clandestine 
hidden secret knowledge. If you think about science, science is knowledge of the measurable. Occultism is knowledge of the hidden. Knowledge of the paranormal, the the secret. And there's lots of different practices that fall under this umbrella of the occult. You've got astrology, palm reading, tarot cards, fortune tellers, magic, witchcraft, Wicca. You can put the New Age under there as well. And none of this was unique to Ephesus. The practice of magic happened all over, as we've seen. Uh, we, we, uh, we saw Simon the Magician earlier in, I think, Acts 8. Uh, there's a false prophet on the island of Cyprus. At Philippi, there's a slave girl who uh, tells fortunes. But Ephesus was a major center of this. You know, just like uh, you can go to Sedona, Arizona, and it's a major center of New Age practice today. Ephesus was a major center of this hidden magic. And this is why last week we see seven exorcists wandering around. And they weren't the only ones. They wouldn't have been out of place. A lot of people practiced magic in Ephesus, and they did so in various ways and for various reasons. And here in verse 18, we're told that many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Remember, the occult means hidden, secret knowledge. It was widely believed that their power was dependent upon secrecy. And if their ways became common knowledge, they would lose their power. If you learned a magical spell, if, if, if I had a magical spell and you, you learned it, it would lose some of its power. You know, I think of, uh, I made, I've got the thought of the illustration of plays in a football game. If you think of a football game, when the other team doesn't know your play calling, when they don't understand what you're saying and where you're going, you have power and you have an advantage. But if you tell them, if you tell the defense exactly what blue 42 means, when you tell them where the ball is going, the play loses all its power. And that's what we see here. Many of those who were now believers came forward confessing and divulging. They were revealing their occult practices so that once all these are named out loud in the open, they lose their power. Isn't it telling the difference between darkness and light and how darkness, the powers of darkness thrive in secrecy? These powers of Satan will thrive in secret and darkness, but once they're exposed to the light, they wither and become powerless. And the power of God, on the other hand. Paul tells the Romans that the gospel is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. And guess what? Paul is not keeping that power secret. He's telling everybody about the gospel. He's proclaiming it to everyone he meets. He's telling every sinner, both Jew and Gentile, how they might become righteous by faith in Christ Jesus. And as that gospel goes forth, the darkness recedes before it. And so you have these believers confessing and divulging their former hidden practices, thus stripping them of their power. But that isn't all. Verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So this is where we get to the book burning we opened with. Men and women who made their living in the occult gathered together in public and began to burn their books. These books were filled with all their plays, if we want to keep the football analogy going. These books contained all their spells, all the verbal formulations and the secret incantations that would be said to heal someone or to curse someone. The, the ways in which they could tell someone their fortune or read a palm or cast out an unwanted spirit. These books listed the names of gods and demons that they would call upon. Names of powers that they would appeal to in order for something paranormal to happen. These books contained instructions on how to use and worship idols. How to create idols. How to care for idols. How to make potions. What kind of jewelry or lucky charm to wear so that you might ward off evil spirits and have good luck. And the people burn them. They don't pawn them. They don't give them away. They destroy them utterly. And it is not shameful. It is not outrageous. It is not an attack on free speech. These individuals are demonstrating a change that has taken place within them. They have seen the power of God manifesting itself through Paul. And they contrast that with the seven exorcists who get the pants beaten off of them. And their consciences are struck. And they can see the difference between the real and the counterfeit. And they renounce their former ways. They are publicly showing that they no longer desired to be practitioners of darkness. But by God's grace, they desired to be children of the light. I was reminded of the words of Jesus spoken in Matthew 6, where he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
If you remember that context, Jesus is talking about money. He ends that by saying you cannot serve God and money. I think you can, I think it works the same here. You cannot serve God and the powers of darkness. You cannot serve God and also practice those things which God refers to as an abomination. Being devoted to the Lord Jesus, they despise their textbooks of darkness. What does Luke tell us next? These books were expensive. They were really expensive. They burned their books in the sight of all, and then Luke says, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How much are we talking about? So a piece of silver was roughly the equivalent to a day's wage. You work a day, you get a piece of silver. So let's just put that in today's terms. Let's say someone is making $15 an hour and they're working an eight-hour day, right? A little bit of math. That would be a daily wage of $120. I'm not worrying about taxes. I want to stay in a positive mood. We aren't worrying about taxes. Eight hours a day, $15 an hour, you're making $120 per day. What would be that daily wage if you multiplied that by 50000 Six million dollars. Six million dollars. These are valuable books that the Ephesians are parting with. These aren't, these aren't pamphlets that they're reducing to ashes. This is a costly repentance. Their their fear of the Lord, their obedience, their worship of God isn't cheap. It costs them dearly, and I don't think we should expect anything different today. We need to beware cheap grace. We need to beware a faith which costs us nothing. I was reminded of a J.C. Ryle quote. I believe this came out of holiness, his book Holiness. But it says, a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. Beware faith that costs you nothing. And with our minds considering the costliness of obedience, I want to again quote the Lord Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. This time, I want to go to the paragraph on lust. And these words will be familiar to you. We went through these a few Wednesday nights back. Jesus says these very familiar words. He says, if your right hand, uh, I'm sorry, if your right eye causes you to sin. Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Now, why go there? Because Jesus is speaking of precious things. He's speaking of valuable things. How much is a right hand or a right eye worth? And Jesus is saying that even if the most precious thing you have causes you to sin, get rid of it. No matter its value. Even if it's worth 50,000 pieces of silver, burn it. Do not spare it. Because if you leave it alone, it will ensnare you and will end in death. Whatever it is that leads you to sin must be forsaken. For them, it was a book. I don't know what it might be for you. Don't allow it to remain. Don't allow it to come between you and eternity. I'm sure it may have hurt some of these folks to see such expensive books burning. You know, they're watching it, maybe wincing, grimacing as they think of all the work and saving that they did in order to afford them. Maybe it was a precious heirloom passed down by parents or grandparents, and now they see it burning. And and Jesus, in Matthew 5, points to the fact that there will be pain, and there will be tears, and there might even be blood. And these are the consequences of letting that thing go. And letting it go may appear unbearable, But to quote Sinclair Ferguson, it's better to deny yourself now than to live with the eternal consequences of your sin. That's what's most important about this book burning. The thing that was leading them to sin was utterly forsaken and cut off. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks on this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and I've got a lengthy quote, if you'll indulge me. He says, Do you realize that the most important thing you have to do in this world is to prepare yourself for eternity? Not detracting from the importance of life in this world. It is important. It is God's world. And we are to live a full life here. Yes. But only as those who are preparing themselves for eternity and for the glory that awaits us. It is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, that you should, as it were, be a cripple while you are here in order to make certain that when you get there, you shall stand in his presence with joy and with glory. He continues, Oh, how sadly we neglect the culture of the soul. How negligent we are about our eternal destiny. We are all so very concerned about this life. But are we equally concerned about the soul and the spirit and our eternal destiny? It is tragic that we are so negligent about the eternal 
And we are so concerned about that which must inevitably come to an end. It is better to be a cripple in this life, says the Lord, than to lose everything in the next. Put your soul and eternal destiny before everything else. It may mean that you will not get a promotion in your work or that you will not do as well as somebody else. Well, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? End quote. You may say, I can't do that. I'm not able. And if you were left all on your own, you would be right. But the Lord Jesus has not left his church alone. And he has given the Holy Spirit to everyone who trusts in his name. And with the Spirit's help, you are able. Those Ephesians who are burning the books and confessing sin and divulging practices of darkness, they are already believers they received the Holy Spirit. And then what follows, what happens is that His power resides in them. And that's where we end. With God's power. You know, Luke could have said, so the... Obedience and honor of the Ephesians continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's not what he says. We see that it's God's power. It's his strength and his word that gets all the glory. In verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do not for a minute think that it is human skill and human knowledge and human effort that is prevailing mightily. It is the word of the Lord that triumphs over demonic powers. And it is his kindness to his church that leads us to repentance. When it comes to forsaking those things that would lead to our death and destruction, when it comes to really honestly meaning the words that we're about to sing, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, I think we can rightly cry out to Jesus and say the very same thing that that father did in Mark 9, I believe Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father God, as your people, our desire is to serve you. We know it is impossible for us to have two masters, and yet so many times we try to live and get by as if it is true. Father, I pray that by your grace and by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to, to be those 
who part with those things we consider precious so that we might not sin. Father, would you give us grace to throw those things away, to be, to be rid of them, so that nothing would come between you and ourselves. Father, would we be strengthened, thinking that to lose such a thing would, would be unbearable. Father, would, would we know that there is a greater joy found in obedience to you and to your word. Father, just as you are doing mighty things through Paul in Ephesus, would you do mighty things through us here today, through this congregation, Trinity Presbyterian Church, would you do mighty things enabling us to Forsake those things which draw us away from you and which war for our affections. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.